1: India is booming with one of the fastest growing economies in the world.
2: Let's not forget this is one of the bright spots in the global economy right now, such a high growth rate.
1: India's economy has already overtaken the UK's to become the fifth largest in the world. But the country is also growing in other ways.
2: India has overtaken China as the world's most populous nation.
1: And with a population of 1.428
2: billion people, the South Asian nation is home to nearly a fifth of humanity.
1: While China worried about population growth in the 1980s and brought in its one-child policy, now, four decades later, it's much more alarmed to find that its population is in decline. While just across the border, their old rival, India, is about to become the most populous nation in the world. So could all of that extra manpower make India their biggest economic rival and the next global superpower? As many
2: population experts say, whether India's population is healthy and educated or not, that will determine whether this a huge population is a demographic dividend or a demographic disaster.
1: Can India overtake China in the size of its economy as well as its population? And how might its rapid growth change India's place in the world? You're listening to stories of our times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today will India overtake China. To understand India's population explosion, there's no better place to start than the bustling, overcrowded capital city. And there's no better guide than Amrit Dillon. I'm based in New Delhi, India, and I've been here for almost 25
2: years. I've been reporting for some years for most of the main British newspapers, and at the moment, for the past two years or so, since the pandemic, I've been reporting on India for The Times.
1: It's brilliant talking to you because in the background, just occasionally, we can hear some of the chaos of the traffic, which is very evocative. You get a sense of that sort of buzz of population all around you. If you think
2: Um, this is evocative, I'm in the quietest (laughs) neighbourhood in the city. You need to go to a few other neighbourhoods to use the word evocative. There there'll be a cacophony. You wouldn't be able to hear me speak at all.
1: We're going to be talking about the population in India, but just take us back to a particular incident in Mumbai that highlighted just the sheer scale of population and the effect it's having.
2: Yes, you're talking about a case uh, recently in Bombay when the police force advertised for about 8,000 positions. Uh, which sounds like quite a lot, but the number that applied was even larger. There were 650,000 people.
0: This is Sumit's third try. He's praying this time he'll get lucky.
2: If I get this job, my life will change because I'll receive a fixed income. I'll have job security. I'll be able to get married. And so there were such large queues that there was a bit of a ruckus and clashes with the police who had to use crowd control techniques to handle the number of people applying. But this is not unusual. A couple of years ago, the Indian Railways, which is always a very popular employer, advertised for about 140,000 vacancies. And for those interviews, young men traveled all over India on top of trains to get to the venue in time. And an astonishing 24 million people applied for those jobs. So that's the level of competition that you see here.
1: 24 million. I mean, you'd have to hire more people just to sift through all the applications. That's well, extraordinary. I,
2: I presume they have some algorithm for it now, but
1: yes. And you really do get a sense there of just the scale, the sheer numbers of people and this burgeoning generation who now need jobs. You live in New Delhi. You're, you're there in the capital. You moved back a couple of decades ago. Just tell us for you, on a day-to-day basis as you're moving around the city, how aware are you of that population pressure? Well, you know, when I came
2: about, as I said, about 20, 25 years ago, the population must have been large then too, of course. But nevertheless, there was a sense that there were certain times when the city was quiet and peaceful. In the evenings, the roads would be fairly deserted. People had hankered down for the evening. Now... I get out of my house and just 50 meters away, as I try to get onto the main road, I am in an almighty traffic jam every day. The traffic is now insane in Delhi. It's gridlocked all the time, any time of day. You look at the trains, they're packed. You look at the buses, they're absolutely packed. You get the sense of a city bursting at the seams as though it simply can't take any more people or cars, and as though every resource is being pushed to a limit and everyone is fighting for air and for space. Now, I'm part of the privileged few. I live in a little bubble because, you know, I can afford to do so. But can you imagine if I feel it's difficult? What is it like for those who live in the slums of of, uh, Delhi, where you're fighting for water? You're storing water by the bucket because you only get water for a few hours a day where if you want to catch a train because there's a wedding in the family or a funeral in the family, you are not going to get a seat at the last moment. So everything is in short supply because there were so many people.
1: I mean, it sounds extraordinary. And the world has become very alert to it now because the UN estimates that India will actually overtake China in terms of population. Any moment now, it, it's due to happen in the middle of the year. I think it's already surpassed the population of mainland China, but even including Hong Kong, that will now be exceeded this summer. Mm. Is that being talked about in India? How is it being viewed? So I can't remember the last
2: time there was any debate, even on India overtaking China. Uh, there'd been one or two TV debates on some news channels Now, the findings of the UN report have sparked off a debate now over whether India needs to act more on its population policy programmes. So, on We the People tonight, let's try and bust some myths and look at... But it really is not a topic that is discussed. I mean, it's not celebrated, nor is it lamented. It's just being taken as a fact. And part of the problem is that population control, family planning, all became a taboo word in the 1970s when the government of the time attempted forced family planning, forced contraception, forced sterilization of men who were forced into vans and sterilized against their will. So far, more than six million Indian men and women have been sterilized. In the past, however, there have been instances where overzealous local officials have brought in boys of 15 and old men scarcely able to walk, let alone procreate. There have even been cases of villagers being bullied into the operation against their will. Now, that caused such a backlash and such indignation that since then, no politician has ever dared mention population control or family planning for fear that um, he or she would be voted out of power or not voted into power.
1: That's remarkable. I mean, just pausing there... You know, I think when people think about this growing population, it may be a great opportunity. It may be a chance for India's economy to eclipse China's too. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But before we do, you mentioned there the difficulty of having that conversation around population in India. I think most people are very aware of the one-child policy in China and the impact it's had, which has now led to a slowing population decline in China. They're really struggling to grow their population and not many people are aware of the policies in India. And you mentioned the 1970s and forced sterilization. Just take us back to that period and explain what was happening. What were the conversations around family planning? When did they become urgent? And talk us through those remarkable policy decisions. So India became independent
2: in 1947. And a few years later, I think in 1952 or so, India became the first country in the world, or one of the first countries in the world, to adopt a formal policy of family planning, which of course was necessary. The population has doubled since 1950 to what it is now, but it was obviously very high even in 1950, and the government realized that it had to do something to curb the population. And that policy continued for the next couple of decades until the emergency in the 1970s, when of course, as we mentioned earlier, the forced sterilizations that happened.
1: That alarming period in the 1970s took place when the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi declared a national emergency because of what her government described as an internal disturbance. It allowed her to overrule the judiciary, amend the constitution and cling on to power. The emergency lasted for 21 months from 1975 to 1977, and it's often referred to as the darkest period in India's democratic history. The emergency was a
2: very unhappy and controversial period in Indian history in the 1970s, and it came about simply because uh, the Prime Minister of the time, Indira Gandhi, had a uh, court verdict which went against her and would have disqualified her as an MP. And simply because she didn't want to lose power, she imposed what was known as the emergency, which basically meant that the press was not free, there were no civil liberties, people could not gather to have public meetings or rallies. Parliament was suspended where the government could do whatever it wanted
1: without being at all accountable. And in 1975, when civil liberties were suspended, family planning and plans to control population growth, took a dark turn. Forced sterilisation was imposed on men from some of the poorest sections of society. And so in parts of Old Delhi,
2: men were rounded up and forced to undergo sterilisation. In the countryside too, you could have farmers tending to their fields and their crops... And a government van would come along and they were forced inside that van. All day long that van sat there while men were being sterilized against their will, and some of them sterilizations were botched. So that is what happened then. I mean, that's remarkable for a democracy. Well, you see, it wasn't a democracy at that time. Because of the emergency, there were no freedoms and no liberties. No one was held accountable for anything. It was only after what well, that government was overthrown. In the next election, the Gandhi was thrown out. And after that, the emphasis of every government has been, despite what China did, India could have followed China, but decided to make family planning absolutely voluntary with no coercion involved at all. And that's meant slow progress. we are educating more girls. Incomes have gone up slightly. Millions of Indians have been put out of extreme poverty. So both those factors have also work towards Indians having smaller families themselves, whether the government wants them to or not. Because now the fertility rate has really reduced remarkably. In the 1950s, for example, the average Indian woman had about five children. Now she has two. So that's a remarkable wow. difference in about, what, 50 years or so.
1: Yeah, and I suppose women are working more than they they would have done in the past too. Where does India stand in terms of social and religious attitudes to family planning and contraception, is it seen as a good thing to do?
2: Everyone knows the cultural preference for boys in India, that your boys are your security, they're your pension. Uh, so for that reason, it's culturally very important for families to have boys. The girl will marry and go away, but the boy stays with you. So what happens is, of course, if your first child is a boy, then that's great. Then you probably go for a second child and you are, you are done. But if the first child is a girl and then you're gonna try again. So I think obviously the cultural need for a boy has played into the reasons why India has larger families than elsewhere across the religions and across social groups. What you have had in India is that you've had Hindu nationalist politicians trying to kind of drum home their particular point, which is that Hindus tend to have smaller families, the Hindu majority, that is, and Muslims who are a minority tend to have huge families. So over the kind of in the 90s, the main party, Janata Party, used to have slogans saying that we have two, meaning Hindus, and they have five, meaning Muslims. But in fact, all the figures and surveys have shown that as people increase their income, as they become more educated, the fertility rate falls across all groups. So that's been a myth that's been propagated purely to win power, but otherwise there's nothing to show that a particular religious group or a particular social group is bent on Mm. having a large family because they want to for whatever reason. That's not the case at all.
1: And um, even with this declining fertility rate, even with most couples only having two children now, you're still set to have an increasing population for the next few decades. It's nowhere near peaking yet. Can India accommodate so many people? Does it have the ability to, to house and provide jobs for this growing population? I think the best way to put it, it is that India's population is
2: absolutely colossal and yet everything you need to be able to deal with that population or to make indians comfortable and have a sense of well-being everything is lagging behind badly whether it's infrastructure whether it's schools whether it's hospitals whether it's roads homes and jobs whether it's sewage treatment you've got a city the size of delhi emerging right, every few years because of the vast migration of people from the countryside to the cities. And so you, you think of these issues and you wonder how, because India's already so far behind in coping with its current population. How it can cope with 1.7 billion, which is what they say the figure is, before it will plateau and start declining. Frankly, I don't know. This government talks a lot about how India has overtaken the UK. Now it's fifth largest economy. They're talking about India becoming a trillion dollar economy in the next few years. But the point is, the real figure that matters, is look at the per capita income. You look at the World Bank figures, the UN figures, India's per capita income is abysmal. It's only about $2,600 a year. A person in Angola, earned more than that, about 3,200. And you see it everywhere. For example, I'll give an example of an election that's happening at the moment in Karnataka, in South India. There's a huge battle going on there between the opposition party, the Congress party, and the ruling the Janta party of Narendra Modi. Now, what would you think is the main issue in this election? It is that Mr. Modi's party is offering five kilos of free wheat to every family as an election promise. The Congress party is offering 10 kilos of rice to every family. So you can imagine the <sighs> I mean, level that's of... very
1: short term.
2: <laughs> so you can imagine the level of poverty if you think that five kilos of rice is going to swing it your way or not in an election. So yeah. I, I mentioned that only to
1: kind of make it clear that the levels of
2: poverty are still absolutely abysmal.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's clearly a huge disparity in the country between the people who are doing very well and the people at that level where votes can be bought for five kilos of wheat. That's incredible. And this all comes at a time where India is also trying to battle, as everyone else is, the challenge of climate change. How does this feed into that? I've been wondering what leaders over the world have been thinking about what India will do as the
2: population increases. All those people will have to be housed and fed and employed, all of them will want electricity, air conditioners, fans, fridges, water, goodness knows what, buildings that have to be built, cement, everything. How is that going to affect the climate? So clearly, India's population is not something which only it needs to be worried about. It's a concern for the whole world. But to be fair, the government has made fairly ambitious promises on renewable energy i think it plans to have about half its energy needs met by renewable energy by about 2030. clearly it is a massive challenge and india of course if you speak to any leader they will say that listen we accept climate change and we need to act on it but we need climate justice too which is that we need the chance to let our country develop and become a a prosperous modern nation just the way the west did and so there's going to be no compromise on Indian leaders wanting the right to let the country develop the way the West did. But what those ramifications will be for climate change, it's difficult to say.
1: So while India's population is now overshadowing China's, can its economy do the same? Will India be the next superpower? That's coming up in just a moment.
0: to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: I'm David Badil. I'm a
2: writer and a comedian and a Jew.
0: I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician
2: and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Just paint a picture for us of what that demographic, what this huge growing population looks like. Because, you know, in Europe, we're used to having quite an ageing population. I think the average age here is about 41, for example. How does that compare in India?
2: There are about, what, 240 million Indians aged between 14 and uh, 25. I think the image you get of India as you're walking around and travelling is that you don't see so many elderly people, although that, of course, is going to be increasing eventually. But all you see are young people looking for work, looking for schools for their young children, looking for space where the children can play in parks. So, yes, it's an overwhelmingly young population on the move.
1: If this is a much younger population than we're used to seeing here in Europe, presumably they all want and need jobs to support themselves and to support their families. Give us a sense of the opportunities available to them at the moment. The issue here is that India has really made a big mistake. The emphasis has been
2: on giving people degrees, not on vocational education. This is, this, I'm afraid, a sorry state of affairs for a lot of young people. They've got an education, but they're really not employable. They don't have fluent English, which many companies need. They haven't got the skills, but the government has been trying to push vocational education. They've launched a mission called Skills India. The attempt is to give young Indians the skills they need to be able to get jobs. At the moment, easily the biggest challenge of this population growth is jobs. Where are you going to come up with the tens of millions of jobs that you'll need to make this population growth an asset and not a liability? It'll mean a huge growth in manufacturing the way China did, and it'll mean a huge growth in services too. Whether that's going to happen, I don't know, the government's trying, but that's going to be the key. As many population experts say, whether India's population is healthy and educated or not, That will determine whether this huge population is a demographic dividend or a demographic disaster. That will be the defining aspect of the whole thing.
1: That's so interesting. And, you know, you, you compared it to China there. Just talk us through some of the differences between the two countries. Is it a question of infrastructure? Why is India finding it, seemingly finding it, harder to translate this big boost in population into a boost in productivity and a boost in growth?
2: India as a democracy is a big, diverse, heterogeneous, unwieldy democracy. It's like a massive ocean liner. And to get it to change direction slightly takes years, maybe decades. And so, I mean, you can't compare India with China. In China decisions are taken very quickly. China got its young population very quickly into manufacturing and exports. And that helped give the country the spurt it needed to be able to pull millions out of poverty. Now, India has to do that, but the infrastructure and the investment is not there. For example, there was a recent cartoon in a German uh, magazine or newspaper called Der Spiegel. It was published around the time when all the stories came out about India overtaking China in terms of population. And the cartoon showed showed a very sleek Chinese bullet train empty with just two people, uh, the driver and someone with the driver kind of zooming ahead. On a parallel track, it showed an Indian train, rickety and decrepit, falling apart, packed to the rafters with people on top two almost falling off the roof. And that was meant to be a kind of a contrast between Chinese infrastructure and Indian yeah. infrastructure. Now a lot of people in India did not like it. Many people on the internet have called this cartoon racist, and we agree. It's a crass attempt at peddling old and racist ideas about India. The West simply cannot accept India's growth story. But the fact remains that Indian infrastructure is very rickety. Now Mr. Modi is trying to change it but it's going to take a lot of time. One example of how the government is trying is that it's giving a lot of incentives to companies, foreign companies, big multinationals, to invest here, to manufacture here. This is their make in India mission. So for example, if it's Apple, Apple has been told, please come and set up factories here for the iPhone and and the Mac. Come and uh, produce here, export from here, and we'll give you massive incentives which basically means they're subsidizing the cost of production and Apple is doing that. Fitting well in Apple's strategy to diversify assembly operations beyond China. It has been making phones since 2017 and today its three main vendors, which together employ some 60,000 workers locally, produce almost 7% of the world's iPhones in India. And the same policy has been extended to the auto sector too. And so there are efforts on to turn India into a manufacturing hub for the world. But again, the issue is, are there enough people with the right skills and the right talent and the education to be able to make the most of it?
1: This year, as well as overtaking China in terms of population, India is also going to be hosting the G20 Summit. How big a deal is that in India? Yes, it's a
2: very big deal here. I mean, the government has been very excited, I would say almost euphoric, about uh, hosting G20. And uh, it's been praised by lots of cabinet ministers as the achievement of Mr. Modi. He's a global statesman. And as a result of his achievements, this look at India's moment in the sun. And so Mr. Modi has been using it to talk up India. So he's been talking about India as the mother of democracy. Until now, I think we all thought that ancient Greece was the progenitor was <laughs> of Western democracy. But he's been saying, no, India is the mother of democracy. So yes, it's a big deal here I, for the government, of course, and for the party. For ordinary Indians, there isn't any great sense of jubilation or satisfaction about this.
1: Does it give people a sense, though, of you know, what the future could be like? If it was possible to sort out the infrastructure of India, this... Booming population could lead to a booming superpower economy. Is there a sense of what that would look like? Of what a world where India was a superpower would look like. How different that would be. But it just seems like a for want of a better word, a fantasy. It is
2: so far off. Twenty years ago we used to say that India's about or ten years behind China the gap has increased and increased. Or we to say India's about, what, 50 years behind the West. But now we all say that the gap is, has just been getting bigger and bigger because India simply hasn't dealt with its problems on time. There hasn't been a sense of urgency to push through the right policies. Governments have all been focused on the short term in order to stay in power. So in that sense, the idea of India as a superpower, a world power where people have the same standard of living as people in the West, that is a very long way off. You can get a glimpse of it here and there. For example, the Delhi the Metro was built by a private company. And when it was first launched, many years ago now, people were thrilled to see something that was world-class because it had so few things in their lives that were world-class, everything was defective or substandard. Here was something that looked and worked magnificently. And as a result, everyone looked after the metro. It was kept clean, it was kept tidy, there was no litter, people behaved themselves on the metro. And so when they got a taste of something that was world-class, it was a huge success. So it's a weird um, juxtaposition of some very modern, positive things happening. And other things still years behind.
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times reporter in India, Amrit Tillen. You can find all of her work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Priyanka Daladir. The executive producer was James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.